It's been a good day to be together with you. Thank you for having me and my wife up. It's uh, always a pleasure to be with you. We plan to be back again on uh, Saturday to partake of uh, the conference this weekend. Uh, so we look forward to those of us uh, who will join us uh, for that conference. I'd like you to open your Bibles again to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'd like to continue uh, in this chapter. I was drawn to it uh, over the Christmas holidays uh, as I was in my personal devotions uh, thinking about how best to prepare uh, for the new year and the resolutions uh, that I was proposing for myself, both examining uh, what we had been through in the previous year and where we thought we might go into the future, and greatly appreciated uh, the wisdom of our uh, brother Peter, uh, who many of us identify with uh, so well because of his outspokenness and his uh, quickness uh, to think uh, both in desire for the Lord and also in uh, stumbling ways in which Jesus would even say to him, get thee behind me, Satan, uh, in the sense that what he was saying was in direct opposition uh, to the word of God. We identify well with Peter. And in this very well-written epistle, uh, he speaks to us in a shepherd's heart uh, to say to us as sheep, I want to see you go on for the Lord. Uh, I want to see you grow in the things of the Lord. Uh, I want to see you thrive in your work. And I understand it's difficult, and I understand that the persecution that you are subject to uh, almost derails you. Uh, but let me give you some pointers as to how I think you could go on for the Lord in spite of these difficulties that you're experiencing. In the opening paragraph that I just read briefly this morning, he speaks out regarding us being foreknown by God. If you pause and, and thought about that for a little bit, you begin to realize how could he know me before I even came into existence? Because everyone we have ever known personally is someone that we, in a point of time, have met and then have gotten to know through interactions with them. And so we would have said that there was a point where we first met them and then we've grown in our understanding about them since. But we have to remember that God is not limited by time and space. And if you thought deeply about it, you would begin to realize that in his foreknowledge, he can actually establish a relationship in the sense of setting his love upon us before he has even created us, before we even come into existence. You might say, that's so ethereal, why would that even make any difference for me? It makes a difference as to the understanding of what's been going on even before I came to hear the gospel for the first time. Uh, that the Lord has been weaving things together to make it possible for me to hear the gospel. He's been working in my life so that I would be interested in the gospel message. He's opening my eyes so that I can even understand what the gospel message is. And there comes a point in time in which I hear and I believe and I trust him and I thank him. And he tells me, probably years down the line when I finally read these harder passages, that 
It was his intent from before the foundation of the world that I would obey him. Right there in verse 2, he says, I was chosen to obey. This was his plan all along, that he wanted me to be his child and to go on for him and to obey him. And so as I was opening the passage this morning, I was expressing how uh, he wants us to place our focus on the hope that we have in Christ returning to take us to be with him, uh, that we don't have uh, just this glimmer of hope, this pie-in-the-sky dream kind of hope, but we have a hope that is alive, a hope that is real, a hope that is true, that we actually have an inheritance that Christ wants to share with us. We don't even deserve to be members of his family, and yet he has welcomed us into his family, adopting us as his children. And the true son, Jesus Christ, welcomes us so intimately that he says, share the inheritance that belongs with me. I invite you to rule and reign with me in my kingdom. And then Peter pauses to say, and I understand that the difficulties that you're experiencing might distract you from the joy that you could have in living a life longing for the return of your beloved. I understand that. But he says, realize, uh, these trials are not going to go on and on and on. They're only temporary. You know, if we could tell you how many seconds a trial would last, or if we could tell you how many days a trial would last, would that help? I remember when my wife uh, was going into the hospital to deliver our first baby, uh, she is a person who plans. And so we went through all the Lamaze uh, child preparation classes and, and were as ready as we could possibly be, including the movie that they showed us of a cesarean section in which I closed my eyes during parts of it, wanting us not to be surprised about anything. And they had taught me that I was going to coach her uh, through the experience and uh, the breathing that she would do would help her concentrate. Uh, and... I'm a little squeamish about uh, things like needles and blood and all, and so I was hoping that the Lord would give me grace to coach her all the way through the birth. Well, thankfully, they had electronic equipment in the room that could easily distract me. They had a particularly interesting machine that would measure the strength of the contraction, and it actually had a scale that it would go up, and it would show how intense the, the contraction was. It showed the midpoint of the contraction and showed when it was starting to go back down again. And so I thought it'd be helpful if I would announce to her, you're right now at the height of the contraction and it's starting to go back down again. I thought, well, this would be pleasing to her that, that I could help her through this by watching the scale and the gauge. And I could say, see, you're half done. It's, it's going back down again. She quickly told me this was news that she didn't need. She could feel it in her own body and didn't need me to announce to her just a little bit more and you'll be okay. Or when they would examine her and announce at what uh, stage she was and how long it might be, uh, she didn't need that either. She just needed to concentrate on what it was she was doing. And uh, thankfully, 
it's not me, it's her, and we've been through five births together and are greatly pleased to have five healthy children, all loving the Lord and going on with Him. But if we were told the trials are temporary, would that encourage us? I think so, to say this is not going to last forever. There will be a time when this is over. And if we were told only if necessary, again, if you want a child, this is the way children come into the world. They come through birth. Uh, they come through nine months of pregnancy. And so you'll say to yourself, this is what it takes to have a child. And similarly, he's saying, these trials are not just to torture us. They're not capricious. It's not by fate. Uh, some come naturally by how it is to be a human. Some come because of sin in the world or sin uh, natures within us, uh, but some are allowed by God to refine our faith and to strengthen our faith, actually to hone us to be better servants for Him. And consequently, he says, do not let these trials distract you from God's goal for you to be his chosen ones who are chosen to obey, who can cling to this living hope and receive this inheritance in the future. Then we pick up the context in verse 10, the new section for tonight. And he speaks first of how privileged we are to be living in this age in which we understand how our salvation has come how much clearer it is for us than the saints that lived in the Old Testament. And then how he asks us to respond to the challenges before us, particularly by strenuous mental preparation in this second paragraph we'll read tonight. And then thirdly, he asks us to conduct ourselves with fear understanding how much it costs to save us so that we will succeed in the final paragraph of being obedient, which is the whole reason he chose us. I pick up the context now, reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world and has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. It's a beautiful section explaining to us the reasons why we would want to go on for the Lord, pleasing Him in obedience. And the privileged position that we have as those chosen before the foundation of the earth to be the obedient ones. And he gives us exhortation as to why it would be so important for us to seek to have the Lord's ministry in our lives, blessing us, enabling us to continue on in this manner of holiness. Regarding this precious message that has been given to us, in the in-between paragraph between the first section of uh, this morning and the section for tonight, he speaks of how the salvation message that came to us was in some ways confusing to the prophets who recorded it. We know that prophecy is not subject to the whim of the man, but he is receiving revelation from God and is communicating as accurately as he can, guided by the Holy Spirit, exactly what God wants to say to us. And sometimes even the prophet himself, as he records the message, is perplexed by what the message says. What's beautiful for us, he says, is now you live in a time, I live in a time, in which in this New Testament era, we have the advantage of both all the New Testament revelation and having looked back on the life of Christ as well as the entire revelation of the Old Testament leading up to that. Notice he says in verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted, this is crucial for us to understand the rejection of Christ, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ, and the glories to follow. Isaiah, for example, both wrote Isaiah chapter 11 of the glories of the millennial kingdom and the peace that comes from the reign of the Messiah, and also Isaiah 53 regarding the suffering of the Lord's servant. You can see how perplexing it would be to say, how can this victorious ruler of the millennial kingdom suffer as is predicted in chapter 53. One of my uh, dear friends at the college in Iowa uh, 
is older than I am, 13 years older, and hence experienced the era in which they actually read the Bible in school before you started school, and I mean public school. When he tells me this, I say, I'd heard a prayer in school. I didn't know you actually had a reading of the Bible. He said, oh yes, every single day in public school, we would read the Bible and pray before school started. I said, that was not my experience. He was one of the uh, students who uh, would be chosen to get up and to read. He read so often from the New Testament that some of the Jews in class complained and said, hey, can't we have the Old Testament sometimes? So the teacher then commanded, we're going to read from the Old Testament quite a bit now just for balance. So my friend was asked to read. He got up and he opened up Isaiah 53 and started reading it. He got two-thirds of the way through the passage, and the teacher stopped him and said, Hey, I told you, you have to read the Old Testament. And, and he said, I am reading the Old Testament. I'm reading from Isaiah 53. She thought it was so clearly a description of Jesus Christ that it had to be the New Testament. No, it wasn't. It is perplexing, and yet for us... On this side of the cross, with the blessings of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and now the written word of God carried in our hands, uh, it's a beautiful blessing that we have of understanding so much more than those before us. To think that even the prophets were quizzical as to how this could be. Verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which, into which angels long to look. We should feel far more privileged than we actually do. The angels are jealous of our position in Christ. The angels long to look at the revelation that has been given to us. The prophets who wrote the revelation that we read wish they had understood it as well as we can understand it today. How blessed we are to have a clear gospel message that we can understand and believe and how much more so once having accepted it once having been saved, once having felt God's love upon us, would we be steeled in our motivation to go on and serve him with a whole heart and not let the trials and the persecutions that we may experience derail us and send us into some sort of pity party in which we feel sorry for ourselves and imagine that God doesn't know or understand or care. Not true at all. Hence the exhortation that's the central part of this chapter, verse 13, where he says, Gird the loins of your mind. Get ready for battle. Now, we don't gird our loins much anymore. Most of us don't have flowing robes that are going to get in the way. If you think of those uh, Sunday school programs in which they wore their dad's bathrobes uh, up on the stage and marched around, uh, they had belts 
And they would reach down between their legs and take those robes and tuck them into the belt to get ready to do real work. And you can see those examples of uh, when Peter, for example, as a fisherman, would be stripped for work in his boat or uh, would be girded and ready for hard work. We don't speak that way. We might say, at most, uh, well, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and get to work. But he speaks of that metaphor in relation to our minds. He says, we're not to let our minds be mush. We're not let, letting our minds go anywhere they wish. We're not going to say, mind, do whatever you want. Just go ahead and daydream. We're actually going to strenuously discipline our minds for what's ahead of us. Have you ever been absolutely terrified about a test you were about to take so that you just studied and studied and studied until you knew everything backwards and forwards and your fear was gone because you were ready and you're saying, like, give me that test. I'm ready for this now. Have you ever known something was so important that you said, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. I'm so ready for this. We should live our lives like we should live our lives ready for action, ready for what the Lord sends our way. We don't know perhaps yet what we're going to experience. I think of Peter and John walking into the temple early in the book of Acts, chapters uh, 4 and 5, not knowing that they were going to be arrested for preaching, not knowing that they were going to run into a beggar that they would heal, not knowing what was ahead of them but willing and ready to do God's work so that when they saw the beggar, they saw him with God's eyes and felt compassion on him. And as he cried out for money, Peter says, I don't have silver or gold. I can't help you in that way, but you're lame. You could work for yourself if you weren't lame. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto thee. Get up and walk. And he heals the layman, gets thrown into jail, beat up, and warned not to ever preach the gospel again. And, and what do they say? You know, you can warn me all you want what you might do to me, but what Peter and John said were, what I've seen, what I've experienced, I can't keep quiet about. You can tell me not to preach, but that won't stop me. I will tell people what I've seen, what I've experienced. Later on, they said, I, I guess we're going to have to choose. If we have to choose whether to obey God or man, we're going to choose to obey God. And hence, he is asking us, on the basis of all that he's been explaining in this chapter, Prepare your mind for serious work because there's a big job ahead of you. Get your mind ready. Keep sober. Whether he means that literally staying away from alcoholic beverages or whether he's speaking of our mind and our spirit, it's probably in a sense both. But he wants us to be ready. My son, a senior in high school, was studying on his bed uh, last Thursday night before uh, his classes on Friday, uh, and he confessed to me that as he was studying, laying down on his bed, he woke up in the middle of the night uh, with his book still laid across his midriff, 
with the light in the room still on, realizing that he thought he was studying, but he was fast asleep, and now here it was the middle of the night, and he wasn't even prepared for the next day. I said, well, that's what happens when you try to study laying down on your bed. Uh, if necessary, perhaps you should walk around while you're studying, or at least sit in a chair at a desk. And I told him the story of my grandfather. He was an oral surgeon in Vinton, Iowa, and wanted to move out to California. Uh, he moved out here in 1924, uh, drove uh, his Ford all the way, even across uh, the desert where there was no road. They just had planks that they laid across the sand, uh, just two planks. And if cars came toward each other, somebody had to get off the planks, and thankfully the cars weren't that heavy. And you could actually stop and help the other person get his car back onto the planks again. When he studied to pass uh, the test, the bar here in, in uh, California, uh, he was both working and trying to study to take the test uh, to become credentialed as an oral surgeon here in California. And he said he kept falling asleep at his desk. So what he did is he took a bucket with water and ice and balanced his feet at the edge of the bucket so that if he'd fall asleep, his feet would slip off into the bucket and wake himself up. So I told my son, your grandfather, when he wanted to practice dentistry in California, place his feet above a bucket of ice water trying to keep himself awake. Now that's the kind of grandson you should be. And this is the kind of thing that Peter's saying to us. He's saying, what kind of Christians should we be in light of what God has done for us? Should we be obedient? Should we be holy? Should we be those who conduct ourselves in fear as those who've been redeemed, not with things like silver or gold, but redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb? What people ought we to be? We ought to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We should be focused, driven people. My father-in-law uh, left uh, the United States in 1952 to go down to Bolivia uh, to be a missionary. He was planning to be a career missionary. Uh, he succeeded in being a career missionary. Uh, he was there uh, up until uh, a year and a half ago uh, when he went home to be with the Lord. Uh, we thought when his health uh, was getting a little more sketchy that maybe he'd like to return to the States and retire and uh, maybe live with us in our home, uh, let my wife uh, care for him. And he's saying, no, there's still work to do. My home is now in Bolivia. And he says, in fact, I've bought a niche where I can have my body buried. I'm going to be buried there. This is where I've felt the Lord's call to serve him. And he was driven to bring the gospel to people. Uh, they had suggested, you know, why don't you do something to uh, help the people to gain uh, some level of credibility. So he started a school for national children uh, that continues to this day. Uh, his major goal was to spread the gospel. He spread it both through the children in the school, but during vacation periods, he went out into the rural areas 
much like the Apostle Paul, seeking not to build on someone else's foundation, but seeking to go where other people had not gone and plant uh, new assemblies. And so he went into areas uh, that no one had gone and planted new assemblies, even to people uh, that were unreached. I think in his lifetime, personally, he planted 22 assemblies, but those have planted daughter assemblies, and now there's 75 assemblies as a result of his work. And you'd say, what kind of person works so hard with such joy? The kind of person that Peter is talking about here, who has steeled his mind, focused his attention, with great sobriety fixed his hope on the call of Jesus Christ and the grace that Christ has brought to us, longing for the return of Christ, believing it to be imminent, and hence the gospel to be urgently preached. It has become what is described in verse 14, an obedient child, carrying on what the Lord has asked us to do. Now think of the average run-of-the-mill Christian who is pleased that he personally is saved, but is pleased to live a life as comfortably as possible uh, with as much uh, pleasure and entertainment and distraction as possible. That, in many ways, people would describe as the American dream. But is that God's dream for us? God's dream is far more focused than that. He asks us to not let our base impulses, uh, the most uh, distracting impulses of our life, the lusts that would crave our own self-fulfillment, distract us from our calling. And instead, to crave to be like the one who chose us. Because he's holy, we would want to be holy. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So this coming Saturday, there's a purity conference. It's about uh, sexual and moral purity. With our base instincts, uh, we would seek to spend on ourselves physical pleasures uh, such as sexual behavior. And we think it'd be all about us and what we could get from those things. In fact, uh, very selfishly, many a teenager would believe that what I should do is steal from you what belongs to you to spend it on my own pleasures. When God has taught us that that is lust and exactly the opposite of love. Love is caring about the other person more than you do yourself. Love is sacrificing your own interests to meet the needs of the other. It's to meet the most precious needs of the other person that causes us to reach out to that person in love. That's what we've seen in God and in his son, Jesus Christ, and in his salvation. And hence, we are no longer 
ignorant like those around us who live according to their stomachs. Their God is their stomach in a sense. No, instead, we lay aside these former lusts and with a focus of mind, obey him in a desire to be like him. Since he is righteous, we want to be righteous. Since he is holy, we want to be holy. My kids always tell me what grades they get in school, and uh, thankfully they're getting great grades in school. You know, they may say, I got uh, a bunch of A's, one A minus, and a B. Boy, in our house, that's great. We praise our children with uh, such wonderful grades as that. But what if we went to God and we said, I plan to get about an 85% in holiness this year. Would that be acceptable to you? Well, the interesting thing, though God knows and actually understands our weaknesses and is willing to continuously cleanse us from unrighteousness, as he says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 9. His goal for us, his desire for us, is that we would be holy as he is holy, that we would be obedient from the heart, that we would long to resemble him in such a way that people would see the image of Christ in us. And hence, we can't hope for a curve. We can't hope to say, well, I'm better than the next guy. I'm ahead of him at least, but our standard is actually Christ himself. And our desire is to be so in love with Christ and so desirous of pleasing him that our desire is to say yes to him over and over and over again and to the best of our ability with a focus of mind. We would say, I want to please you. One of my sons <clears throat> uh, was in an arrangement in a class uh, where he had to read an inordinate amount of books in a year. It was something like 50 books. And it was about 10 days from the end of the school year, and he still had something like 19 books to go. You'll have to ask my wife the exact numbers on, on these books. I'm getting a little rusty on the numbers. And the way he told it to us was, I got like 19 books to go. There's only 10 days left. He said, I guess I just won't get them done. Which, if you know my wife and our family, those are fighting words. To say you've accepted a year-long assignment, you've known all this time the amount of books you were supposed to read, you know what the books are, and you have dilly-dallied around, and now at the end you're just going to say, I guess I just won't finish. She said, oh, yes, you will, and I'll stay up with you if necessary. You will read all of those books, and you will be done on time. And sure enough, he finished. How did he finish? It was because his mother made sure he finished, because it was important to her that he finished the task that he agreed to do and was set before him. If we are capable and willing, with pressure, to do that in something as simple as school, wouldn't we do that all the more in our desire to please the Lord when he says, I am holy, 
I want you to be holy as well. We want to be as pleasing to our Lord as possible, out of love for him, out of what he has done for us, because of how great he has given us grace. Verse 17, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You'll read other passages in the scripture that assure us of our salvation and comfort us uh, even when we have fallen, knowing that we have a forgiving God. And if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But perhaps we emphasize that side of the coin to the exclusion of this side of the coin, which is, you know he's going to judge you, not on the basis of condemning you, but on the basis of reward, but you know he's going to judge you, so how does that make you feel? I think too many of us are too comfortable heading into the judgment seat of Christ, saying like, it'll be okay, I'm going to make it, I'll be rewarded. And a lot of us are going to have a cup that's full, but it'll be one of those Dixie cups you drink out of in the middle of the night that can't hold more than a few ounces. And we'll say, my cup's overflowing, but it's a Dixie cup. Some of us are going to have 7-Eleven big gulp cups, 44 ounces full and overflowing, and we will be overflowing with the joy of the Lord, but to a much greater capacity. And consequently, I would suggest that as Peter himself, who knows what it's like to fail, he denied our Lord three times, and knows what it's like to receive his forgiveness, he was restored and commissioned to be a pastor, a shepherd of sheep. When he says, I know he's going to be an impartial judge, so what I'll tell you to do, I'm going to conduct myself in fear, knowing that my redemption was of great cost, not stuff like silver or gold, but with the most precious thing there is, the blood of Jesus Christ, given to us as an unblemished, spotless lamb. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, this plan that Christ would be our sacrifice to pay for our sin was the plan before the world was even created. So not only is this the plan, but we were chosen before the foundation of the world. All this was set in motion before creation. And here I am years later with an opportunity to serve the Lord or serve myself. And how do I feel about that? He says, he's now appeared in these last days for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. How then shall I live? Verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, for a sincere, that means non-hypocritical, love of the brethren, 
Why? Fervently love one another from the heart. So if he has sanctified me for the purpose of loving my brothers, what should I do? This is not rocket science. I should love my brothers sincerely from my heart. That means I'd have to know them. I'd have to know what's going on in their lives. I'd have to care about what's going on in their lives. I'd actually want to help them. I'd actually sacrifice in whatever it would take, whatever I have to give to meet their needs and helping them come to the point where they too love Christ to the point where they are girding their minds for action and living in fear, seeking to obey the Lord as best they possibly can. He says, for you've not been born again, you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. He says, the life that he gives you is not going to flame out. The life that he's given you is eternal life. The empowerment that he has given to you will last forever and ever. It's based on God's word itself. And though we, in our own ways as human beings, and even these corruptible bodies, will fail, in many ways, physically, we're not any better than grass, though we might last a few years longer. The word of God that has come to us, that has brought us salvation, endures forever. As he quotes, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord, this word that has saved us, endures forever. This is the word which was preached to you. This kind of pep talk, this kind of rallying cry excites me because it comes from a man whose life I know. I've read this man's life. I know his experiences. I know what he's been through. He's a fisher of fish who become a fisher of men, now a shepherd of sheep who exhorts me not to lazily waste my life away, but with strenuous discipline of mind, keeping sober in spirit to fix my hope completely on the grace that God has given me and the call to be with him someday. Hence, I will seek to communicate this gospel to others and live in a manner that he can say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your rest. Father, we then come before you and say, how precious is the blood that was shed for us. How startled we are to think that even before we sinned, you had already planned how you would save us. What an amazing thought. And even before we were born, you'd already planned our lives and how you would save us. You chose us. And even though we didn't know when the gospel would come into our lives, you did. And you brought the gospel to us and we heard. And our eyes were open and we believed. And by faith, we receive this gift of salvation. May we not squander it now, but may we share it with others. 
May we not live a lackadaisical life, but may we live a life with minds girded for action. May we be focused. May we be those who desire to be holy as you are holy, desiring to be pure as you are pure. May we understand the lust that we had in our ignorance and now with better understanding reject those lies and instead believe the truth. Oh, Father, with our hearts wide open to you, we ask that you would empower us to be your servants for your glory. For we ask in Jesus' name.